Hello and welcome on a very hot and sticky Sunday. 31 degrees outside, but hey, you know what? Um, as long as everyone is safe and happy, that's the main thing. My name is Tabriz, the best grassroots centre-back in Vets football. That's a fact. And uh, yeah, I want to, again, give a shout out to like, you know anyone that's that's uh, subscribed, following, and again, making comments. I have a very, very, inst- you know, interesting, sorry, interesting gentleman on this particular show. Um, he's a straight talker. Um, he, like, you know, knows his football. And he has educated me in, in kind of certain business terms and in certain business ways that I didn't actually realize. And um, I want to hopefully share the knowledge that he's given me to you. So uh, again, I want to give a big, big, big shout out to CEO of Booster and C- Assistant Manager. CEO of, CEO of, he'll have my guts for guts. CEO of Booster and also Assistant Manager of Lewis uh, FC Men's Joe Vines. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. Cool, good stuff, good stuff. And, um, and you know, I want to kind of kick kick the conversation off straight away with um again this kind of word um ultra um entrepreneur and intrapreneur um yeah. could you tell us what the difference is and yeah. uh, literally how would you describe yourself yeah absolutely and it's something i've sort of not coined the phrase but it was something that's really i was educated for a good friend of mine a guy called dean forbes um, who spent his career building businesses from the inside. Um, you know, everybody knows about entrepreneurs. Everybody knows about, you know, the the smart people that spin a business out of nothing, um, bootstrap it, you know, they, they pay their own way. They completely own the product or the service. And it's, you know, the holy grail of, you know, being a self-made uh, man or self-made woman. Um, you know, the, the entrepreneur is somebody that works for a business um, that drives the same kind of innovation or, you know, or, or, or change within that business uh, and really drives that forward. You know, how you make your money, um, you can make good money being an employee. Um, there seems to be this sort of, um, you know, anti-employee mentality where you've got to work for yourself. You've got to be, you know, the main man or the main woman um, but actually working for other people, as long as it's the right business and, um, you know, the entrepreneurial mentality is about getting a piece of that business, um, however small that might be, and growing it, you know, through your own work uh, direction and ensuring that, you know, the, the products and services that they deliver are market leading. Um, so that's the key difference between an entrepreneur and, a, and an entrepreneur. And um, because this is a football platform, I would, you know, want to try and connect it with, especially like the vets um, uh, uh, side of the side of the industry. How can someone use, you know, that kind of practical way of thinking uh, and enhance their football club, either at non-league level, amateur level? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd let, love to get your. Well, um, I think your I think that it's about. You know, there's a lot of um, it's a mentality, right? It's, it's how you if you're if you're looking at things from like the alpha male perspective, and you've got to be in charge, and you've got to be in control, and you're the person. All roads lead to you. Um, very very quickly, it becomes overwhelming. Um, so you need good, um, you know, lieutenants, you know, amongst the group. So somebody that's willing to, you know, potentially not be the number one. Uh, potentially not be that person that is seen from the outside looking in as the most important person in the room, but you can still drive that change and you can still influence, you know, all the positive um, changes and, and, you know, and innovations that mean that, you know, my role at Lewis, for example, is as assistant manager. I work with Tony Russell, um, in my opinion, the best manager at the, at the level and, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, probably beyond that as well, I must say. Um, I don't have a problem 
being his assistant, I actually flourish in that role because it allows me to showcase the skills that I have um, up against the skills that he has. So, you know, there's a real danger of, you know, do you have to be, you know, the, the man? Do you have to be the number one or woman? Um, but do you have to be the person that is seen as, you know, they're in charge when actually you can influence just as much change. You can develop players in the same way um, by being in the background or supporting. Um, I think that the problem that a lot of people face is, is about ego, is about, look at, you know, that look at me, like I'm, I'm the person, I'm the one. But actually, by just doing a good job, um, you can share in that success. You know, I've seen a lot of success on the coaching side in recent years. Um, it isn't about having your name plastered over the newspapers, which you won't get if you're not the manager, um, but you know your value. And also, if you're working with a very, very good manager, like I'm fortunate to, then they will give you the plaudits internally. And and that's enough. That recognition from from that aspect is more than enough to see you through. So it's a bit of a selfless role, um, and it should be, um, rather than, you know, the... I'm not saying that all managers are, are egotistical, but from my perspective, it's not about that. It's not about me. It's about the team, which when you're in football, that's the key element, right? It's about the team. And um, probably kind of digressing a little bit away from uh, football. I mean, I, I, I kind of saw you... Uh, on a kind of podcast, on a video podcast platform, and and um, you you kind of spoke very eloquently and very straight to the point, without being overbearing and and exactly what you said before, not kind of um, leading with your ego, because there's you know there were two two like other hosts on the show that also want to get their point across. Um, mm. Were you kind of conscious of of the of the dynamic with uh, with the free view, and also were you conscious of the person that you was having a conversation with, not to overpower each other? Yeah, I mean, look that that podcast series was called The Ascenders. It was uh, backed by the Forbes Family Group. As I said, Dean Forbes is a very good friend of mine, has been for a long time. And that was alongside Tim Campbell, who's famous for winning the very first Apprentice. He's, he's on that at the moment. Very strong character, very smart, eloquent, you know, articulate man. Um, and Lynn May, and Lynn is a, you know, a, she, she's very much out there. She's got quite diverse uh, views at times. Very smart young lady, wonderful to, to work alongside. Really enjoyed that. My style is, is very much... Um, to fill the gaps, right? Not to to talk for the sake of talking. And I think I don't I, I don't necessarily believe that my style is great for TV um, because I'm not arguing over people or you know or, or talking over people in the way that appears Morgan would. Um, that particular series of podcasts was all together. Myself and Dean, you know, create the concept for that, and the reason for it was to. Um, to really inspire youngsters from backgrounds like myself and Dean, who come from, you know, difficult beginnings as such, you know, weren't on the breadline or anything, but, you know, certainly I wasn't, but it was more about, um, you know, coming from uh, a backdrop of growing up in social housing um, and that, you know, my parents are both working class, you know, are working class and had children and struggled in certain aspects. So we didn't have everything available to us. And, the barriers to that are bigger. So when you come from a lower socioeconomic background, when you go to certain schools and you're speaking to people about careers, they give you options. You know, the pinnacle for, for my age group was to work in a bank. You know, if you really made it, you worked in the bank. Um, and if you weren't quite at the level of um, academic understanding as those people that got those opportunities, you picked up a trade. So you worked as a tiler or a plumber or electrician uh, and they were the options that were available to you. So the choices that you had were very limited um, from an educa educational setting. What we tried to explain with that series of podcasts was that the world is huge and opportunities are massive. And the only barrier to that 
is your understanding and your knowledge, um, you know, of those. So are you made aware of them? You know, what are your choices? What are the fields that you could go into? And with my background in recruitment, I thought it was really, um, you know, for, for me, it was an opportunity to give back and to position, um, you know, a number of opportunities by showcasing stories of people that have come from similar backgrounds to myself and to Dean. And, and we're able to have huge success, whether that's, you know, and particularly, again, as I mentioned, people from a lower socioeconomic background, um, it's not just about being a rapper or a footballer. It's about, you know, opening people's eyes to the fact that they could work in software or they could work in, um, you know, in business or a variety of other places. Um, you know, it's just opening those eyes and, and, and educating as many people as possible that, with a little bit of guidance and having the right representation, um, it could inspire you to to go above and beyond what other people expect of you. Mm. And why do you think um, entrepreneurship isn't spoken uh, about um, as much as being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that people see working for somebody else as a negative you know, it's like, you know, you're filling somebody else's pockets. Um, that is right. But if you can position it in a way that your skill set is such that, you know, they see the value in you and what you're bringing and the multiples that you're adding to their business, then you should be in a position with education. Uh, and when I say education, it's not about GCSEs. It's about understanding of, of how a business works, where you can get a piece of it. And having skin in the game, uh, whatever, you know, however small that percentage might be, um, gives you an opportunity to grow your stake in that business. So if they do position that in the future and sell it, um, you know, what you what you get out of that is much more than your nine to five wage. So and I think that's something, again, that I only learned in the last few years working for big corporations, taking your money, taking your bonuses and, you know, seeing that, um, you know, seeing that come through through your own hard work, there comes a point where you recognise your own role in the success of that business. So sometimes smaller businesses, it's easier uh, to get a piece of the pie. Um, but if there is an opportunity for you to position yourself in such a way that they can't do without you, you should be able to negotiate without feeling bad about it to say, well, is there an opportunity here for me to have shares in the business or, you know, how does that, you know, or if I can prove myself rather than getting paid a bonus, can I be paid in a percentage? So I think that conversation and having that conversation is really important. Uh, the entrepreneurial side of things is attractive, right? Everybody likes the idea of being their own boss and, you know, managing their own hours and yeah, I can start when I want and finish when I want doesn't quite work out that way right because you end up working longer hours and you know, if you've got employees you need to make sure that they're looked after and so there's stresses and strains that come with that as well um i think it's down to the individual and you need to find what works for you um, rather than being dictated by you know all of these instagram accounts that say like oh, i've started you off i've given you a hundred pounds and now go and start your own business like what sort what am i selling ice creams for a day you know it, it that is not reality um there will be some people that are very adept at understanding business from an early age and spinning money out of nothing and i can't deny that but for the majority of people being an employee is not the end of the world and you can earn good money and you can you know get out of life what you want to get out of life because success is more than just money right it's happy you know the happiness of it the comfort the flexibility um, I think you need to find what works for you um, rather than be led by what the outside world is telling you, um, trying to keep up with the Joneses. Mm. Why do you think men over, let's say, 35, possibly even 40, struggle with, um, let's say, key decisions in their careers? I think it's education on, on the whole. And again, when I speak of education, it's about understanding. Um, like I read a lot. You know, there's there's books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad that educate you around you know, the decisions that you make 
uh, with your finances from a very young age. You know, I was chasing fast money from a young age because I wanted things that my family couldn't afford to buy me, like trainers and things like that, right? So I wanted the latest trainers. Say, mum, any chance I can get these? She said, no, absolutely not. So I've got a paper round and then I've got a second paper round. And then I'm working in the in the corner shop, breaking boxes down, getting an extra five of that. And so, you know, that is that's not entrepreneurial, right? You're working for your money. But when that money lands and you can buy your own trainers, you haven't got to worry about asking someone else for that. So I think it's about, you know, when we talk about men of a certain age, I think that education around finances and managing your finances in a certain way that allows you to then live better later on in life is really important. And I don't think enough is done in school um, to help um, children understand the value of saving, the value of investing, however which way you'd like to do that. I'm not talking about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies that most people don't have an understanding of, but how can you get your money to work for you? And again, I'm not saying I've cracked it because I really haven't. So, you know, this isn't about me going, look at me, I'm great. I'm, you know, a multimillionaire. I'm not. Um, but I wish that I'd had that level of understanding from a much younger age that, you know, to 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 really, when you look at the, the really wealthy, um, how they utilise money, how they utilise credit and they make that work for them, is very different to people from a working class background like myself, where you just, it comes in and it goes out just as quick. Because, mm. um, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, because there's, there's good debt and there's bad debt. But, like, to us, like, debt is a debt. And, you know, you can, you, you can work with a good debt if you have the right people around you, right? Yeah, it's just about, I mean, again, I, I've got a financial advisor now, right, that will, that will, you know, tell me the direction that I need to go in with certain aspects. But I think it really makes sense to to try and educate yourself as much as possible. I wouldn't want to advise people, like, do this, do that. Everybody's um, circumstances are different, right? Um, it's a hell of a lot easier to take risks with regards to investments when you've already got money. So, you know, if you're... Donald Trump and people talk about oh he lost all this money and now he's made multiple billions. Well, it comes from a family that had uh, generation generational wealth. So if you're losing a hundred million, but you still got five hundred million, you know, in your back pocket, it's different to if you're losing a hundred pound and you only had a hundred pound. Mm. So look, I, like I said, I'm not here to educate people or to advise them about how they manage their own finances, but it really makes sense for me to, for them to self-educate and to ask as many questions as possible. And, you know, when you are seeking advice from people, seek advice from those that have money or using it in the right way, rather than, you know, your mate down the road who's telling you, no, 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 what you want to do is you want to throw it into this. I don't tend to listen to those people if I can help it. Um, because, you know, the proof, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. And um, just kind of listening um, to your answer, I don't know if the pen is dropped for me. Do you think the average 35-year-old is financially and more, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they're like not as worldly and more secure as, as a 35-year-old back in the 1970s. If that so, makes sense. No, I think it's a different world, right? I, I think that, you know, it, it's difficult right now because, you know, I think that the average house price, forget the number, was probably three times the average salary, whereas now the average house price is between sort of seven and eight times the average salary. So um, you can't, um, you know, sort of have a go at people for you know spending their money on a month by month basis and not having anything left over when you've got a mortgage and bills that are rising consistently higher um it's not an easy way forward i think we live in a um you know everybody is very good at spending money um so even if you're saying oh, i haven't really got any money you're still finding money to spend on 
you know, fast fashion or fast food or, or whatever else. Um, you know, you've got your Netflix subscription, you've got Sky TV, you've got this, that and the other. When I talk about not having any money, you know, I'd consider to be cancelling all my subscriptions and, you know, your Spotify has gone and this one's... So people do find excuses to say, oh, I've really got any, not got any money, when actually they have. It's about how they, you know, their expenditure is going out on the wrong things. Um, you can survive without these things, by the way, right? It's not something that if you don't have Spotify, you're not going to die. Um, if you can't put food in the fridge, that might be a different problem entirely. There's not, you know, is there an easy comparison between the 70s and, and now? You know, I always think the 70s was 30 years ago, but it's a significantly larger time period now, right? We're talking 50 or years ago. So it's a, it's a generation away. Um, I don't think you can compare the two. But do I believe that most um, people, not just men, but people, are um, educated enough when it comes to their finances and how best to to operate that, how to save properly. Um, again, I think it's a mentality. I think it's um, it's something that we need to try and drum into our children so that when they get to a certain age where they're earning money, it's not alien to them. Uh, they're already thinking, right, 10% of whatever I earn goes in my savings. So true, so true. Rather than and, just saying, right, I need this, I need that, and I'm going to go splurging it. Yeah. And um, I'm going to make a huge um, assumption here. I'm going to say that you're probably 30, 31. So, so, so like, you know, <laughs> I'm 42. Oh, I'm, listen, great age, great I'm, age. Yeah. I've <laughs> two of them. So, <laughs> what was your biggest fear turning 30? Um, my life was very different at 30. So I had no children. Um, you know, it was a, a whole nother relationship away. Um, and I was eager to, you know, to start a family and things like that. And, um, you know, it didn't work out. So for me, it probably wasn't 30 exactly, but 30, I think I was 31. Um, when I thought, right, I'm 31, I'm on the scrap heap, right. I, um, you know, starting again, um, you know, career-wise, I was in a good job, but it wasn't an unbelievable job. Um, I was still playing football. Um, and football has been a blessing and a curse for me in that, you know, a lot of my, you know, I'm obsessed with the game, right? I'm absolutely obsessed with the game. I played until I was 37. So my career, albeit worked alongside football, um, probably suffered with some of the decisions that I made because I decided against certain jobs because it didn't allow me the flexibility to play football. Um, I don't regret that, by the way, because I think you only get one opportunity to pursue a passion. Um, and I don't, I wouldn't say that I, I love my job. I, I not, not that I do it because I love it, but I found a love for my work. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think it's important that you find a love for anything that you do. Um, with football, it was that little bit easier. Um, so, yeah, I think for, for me at 30, 31, I was more concerned about, um, you know, what direction was I taking from a personal perspective rather than worrying too much about my professional career because I'd always earned good enough money because I was in a sales environment and there was an opportunity for me to earn commission, which meant that I was master of my own destiny. So as long as I worked hard and I did the right things, the money would follow. And, um, you know, I'd like, like to kind of um, talk about your footballing journey. Um, of course, like we are kind of at the present, you know, uh, stage now, but can you kind of take us back to probably where you felt, hang on, you know, what? I could actually make a decent living from, from like playing football. And uh, also as well, now being assistant manager at uh, Lewis FC, what's like the, probably the most important characteristic of being, you know, an assistant manager and being part of the management team. Yeah. Um, look, football wise, I, as strange as it is, I never wanted to be a footballer. I wasn't, you know, a star footballer as a kid. I was never at a pro club. I didn't play for the district. Um, you know, my brother was a much better junior footballer than I was. Um, when I was 17, I got contact lenses um, because I used to wear glasses, obviously. 
and um, my game really improved, strangely enough. <laughs> I could see things. I could see the ball. I could see who I was tackling. <laughs> and there was a lot of interest when I was young, 17, 18, 19, uh, from professional clubs. So there was a lot of clubs sniffing, but nothing ever materialised. But because I never had that um, academy career where I was released, I never had a bitterness about the game. So I had a lot of friends that were in the pro ranks and didn't make it. And when they come out, they not had a chip on their shoulder, but they were really bitter about, oh, I didn't make it, and they felt, oh, done by. I just love to play the game. Um, and I started at 17 playing men's football. And because I started at a level that was manageable for me, um, I played, by the time I was 19, I played a lot of games, probably, you know, 80, 90 games, where, you know, you think the average kid in an academy, they only play 15 games a season. And the football was a bit tippy-tappy. Um, you know, it certainly wasn't, um, you know, competitive in the way that men's football was. So I think I signed for Cray Wanderers when I was about 19. And my first envelope that I ever received had about 30 quid in it. And I was buzzing. Um, and it really, you know, by the time I was... 20, 21, I was playing for Bromley and then I, I sort of, you know, I'd worked my way very quickly up the up the ladder. Um, so I started in South London football and I ended up, by the time I was 22, I was playing in the Conference South uh, for Lewis, um, you know, at that time under a really good manager, Steve King. And, um, you know, we, we were in the fir- very first season, the Conference South was created. We got promoted, we got a double promotion. Um and, you know, in that group of players, um, who are lifelong friends of mine now, were people like that you might be familiar with, people like Francis Duku. Um, okay. Yeah, he's like South London royalty when it comes to non-league mm. football. Uh, junior Caddy was in yeah. that side. Um, so these are, you know, my real close friends from, from that day onwards. And, um, you know, the experience itself. But it, it wasn't about the money. The money was good. Um and it was nice to get paid weekly, but as quick as that came in, you know, I, I passed it over to a barmaid. <laughs> Jay, I'm just on the call, yeah? Sorry. No Time everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's saying goodnight to me. Well, but, um, yeah, like I say, as quick as it came in, it was passed over to a barmaid in the West End on the Saturday night. Um, so, but, you know, the, the wages that I got from football was enough to cover my mortgage money. So it was a significant, um, it wasn't silly money, but it was, you know, it was a lot better than I was used to when I first started getting 30 quid in an envelope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and um, now as a as an assistant manager at Lewis, unless you're part of the management structure, um, what's the kind of, I'd say, the most important char- um, characteristic that an assistant manager needs needs to have in a in a kind of professional club? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in, in my role um, with Lewis and working with Tony, it's really important that I fill the gaps. So, you know, understanding who you're working with, you know, where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are potentially and slotting in in a way that is um, not abrasive to what they're doing. Because we, so Tony and I were very, very good friends, right? He's an unbelievable guy, but we don't always agree. Mm-hmm. But we have our disagreements in the car. And, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it, it's like a, it's like being parents, right? Because if someone said, you know, if one of your kids said, oh, "Dad, can I have a yogurt?" and you say no, and then they go, "Mum, can I have a yogurt?" and she says yes, it's a problem, mm-hmm. right? And then they recognise that, okay, I'll go to mum, and mum will give me what I want. So you need to have that joint front, and you need to be able to to fill the gaps like I said earlier on, where you know, I, I do a lot of um, what I call drive-bys. So whispering in ears and understanding, right, so-and-so looks a bit, uh, they've got a problem today. What is it? How's it all going? You all right? What's happening at home? Uh, oh, I've had a bit of trouble with my missus or, you know, I've got work's getting a little bit on top or my baby's not sleeping. And then I can feed that back to the manager. So whereas the manager's looking, he's looking at the tactical stuff. He's looking at, right, it's 11 v 11 today. I want that to happen. I want this to happen. There's not enough time. We don't have enough time in in semi-professional football to cater to all of that. So 
I've introduced, I'm a very methodical thinker. I've introduced certain processes. You know, I introduced the uh, the video analysis to Tony when I first joined and we've really adopted that. We now use GPS vests. We now use um, a well-being. Um, we've got like a script that every day when they come in, we talk to them about how they're feeling, certain aspects, so we can capture how they feel you know, on a, on a uh, every time they're in with us. And it allows us to monitor if there's a dip in their scores, then it, it, it sort of triggers a conversation, things like that. So it's the it's the small detail. I call it the one percent, um, that continuous improvement. And again, it's very similar to what I do at work with the CEO. And I feel the gaps that um, that he leaves and, and vice versa. So working in tandem and working in a team, um, you know, as a backroom staff. We all know what our strengths are and we try to um, to make sure that we utilise all of those and fill any gaps that the others have. I would like, love to get your opinion about mental well-being in, in like semi-professional football. Is it something that's spoken about freely um, at a kind of other clubs that, you know, um, that literally are huge advocates of of like mental well-being? I think it's something that's becoming um, more, you know, spoken about more often now. Um, I can't really talk about other clubs. I don't, I don't really go into other clubs. Certainly in the professional environment, uh, player welfare officers and things like that are becoming more commonplace. How developed and mature those are, I really don't know. I was talking to a good friend of mine on um, Friday, a guy called Kevin George. He's wrote a book called uh, Psychology. He's got another book coming out soon. I would plug it, but I don't know. What it's <laughs> and, and he's he's very much in that psychology space. And we spoke often about, uh, you know, my character as a player. Um, I was somebody that was well-liked from a management perspective because I was your typical run-through brick, uh, brick walls. You know, he gets in people's faces. He's good for the group. He's loud. He's, you know charismatic etc etc but I was also prone to violence I was also prone to uh, disciplinary issues um, could fly off the handle quickly and that's a product of my upbringing and where I'm from and you know how you operate um, on an estate and you know how you meet aggression with aggression and you know if you back down from that that means that you know you've got a weakness um, and that's something that's very common from uh, for people uh, going into a professional environment. When the coaches shout and then the kids sort of go like, "Are you talking to?" in, in a sort of in a way of bouncing that back, they're, then they're seen as having a bad attitude um, or being a bad egg. And actually, that's a psychological way for them to to, to manage the situation that they're in. So, you know, it's it and, and talking about. Um, you know, you represent the club, you know, so the mindset is wrong because you don't represent the club. You're not a representation of the club. You're a representation of yourself. Mm. And that's how you should see yourself. You know, what you project is you. So being more understanding of that will help you to be more self-aware and would help you to manage that more effectively. Um, well-being, it covers a, a huge umbrella. Um, you know, you could be talking about people that have got uh, neuro... Um, diverse you know i've got challenges that stem from being neurodiverse right adhd for example um i see a lot of people going oh everyone's got adhd these days and blah 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 and well no it's just becoming diagnosed more there was a lot of people with adhd when i was a kid but it wasn't diagnosed which meant those those children or those people weren't didn't have any help to manage that so they were often seen as the bad kids or the disruptive kids um, you know, so well-being um, you know, for a lot of kids that are um, in the foot, football environment that are being drummed into him, you're going to be a footballer, you're going to be a footballer, you're going to be a footballer. And then they get right down to the last you know, year and then they get discarded because they are no longer of use to the football club. And they wonder why so many of those uh, boys and girls come out of the game and don't play a game full stop or have challenges, mental challenges, um, depression and things like that, 
Well, because the pressure that comes with it, right, is worse than, you know, and how that's handled is worse than you can imagine. And again, I do recognise that going into full-time employment in any other job brings a certain amount of pressure, but there isn't the same level of blowing smoke up their ass, and there isn't the same level of money. So they're given huge, you know, look at Chelsea as the model. There are professional, the kids there that have never played a first team game. They're driving around in, you know, Bentleys and things like that, thinking they're going to be a footballer for Chelsea Football Club. And it never materialises. So the crash landing back down to earth is much bigger than it would be if you're working in a professional environment elsewhere on 25 grand a year. And someone says, look, I don't think this is for you. You can go and get a job somewhere else on very similar money and make a good career out of that. If you're a footballer on three, four, five grand a week at 17, 18, and you don't crack it off, and then you're a postman tomorrow, there's a world of difference there. I would love to know where you had to change your your kind of um, f- philosophy in terms of how you played football, because you because you said that you was very aggressive, you was in your face, you was almost like the joker of the pack. There must have been a time where he's like, hang on, you know what? I have to change how I play and uh, literally the energy that I was giving off. Um, not really. <laughs> not really. It still kicks in, right? That competitive nature still kicks in. But as I got older, when I got into my 30s, my sort of from 30 two to 37 the body changed so that dynamism that sort of all action play that I used to 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 be had to change a little bit I had to sort of subdue that a little but there was still the aggression and the you know the the competitive nature combative nature um but I mean people that have played against me will go oh he's horrible (laughs) people that played with me would tell a different story. And I actually, you know, I had a boy that I played with and he went, I always thought you were an horrible bastard, but actually <laughs> when I played with you, he said, you're a nice guy. So there's getting that balance of, um, you know, when I'm out there, when I crossed the white line, I used to want to win. Uh, and it wasn't at all costs, but, you know, pretty close to it. And I like to play on the edge. I played better when I was bubbling under the surface. Um, because if I was, if I was just relaxed and, you know, it got very lackadaisical. It showed in my game, my quality went. Whereas if I was constantly on it, um, not only did it drive me, but, you know, I'd like to think that it drove my teammates as well. Um, I went into my old coach, uh, Danny Carroll, he's at Bournemouth. He does the under-18s at Bournemouth. And I went in to watch a session and I was talking to him about the differences between non-league football and professional football. And he said, oh, he said, like, I planned a session one day and, you know, one of the players came to me and said, right, what are we doing today? And I said, we're doing this for the first bit, then this, then that. And he said to me, no, I don't want to do that, mate. I just want to play five-a-side. I've been to work all day. I just want to play five-a-side. <laughs> and I said to him, who was that? And he said, you. <laughs> that says anything. Um, but, yeah, and, and, and also I, I, I operated under some really good managers during my time. And, um, you know, I would say the best that I operated under was George Wakelin and, and Billy Smith. Um, absolute, you know, when it's talk about legends is a word that gets thrown around very lightly, but, you know, very, very good old school football managers. Um, but they knew how to manage me uh, and to push my buttons to to get the best out of me. So, yeah, I was very grateful for for working under some very good managers. Why do you think uh, the elite um, uh, athletes in, let's say, in the Premiership and across the world and, and Europe, that are reaching 35, oh, not, not not really 35, but 30 onwards are getting better pay deals and are performing better than they were in their teens and 20s. Yeah, I mean, I, it's difficult to correlate uh, their pay deals with their performances, I think. I think, you know, when you look at uh, the likes of Messi and Ronaldo, for example, Um, And you go back, you know, we spoke about the 70s, right? And you look at the professional footballers of the 70s. There's a lot more education and understanding of nutrition, 
Um, you know, I, I think personally, the game changer was the uh, influx of foreign managers into the Premier League with your Arsene Wenger's and, and people like that, um, because they changed the the culture of football, and you know, not just in in the Premier League but globally. And you know, the Italian league was slightly ahead of us, which is why that was the best league at the time in the you know, in my opinion, in yeah. the early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, and um, because how they lived, they lived, you know, they, they hardly drunk. They might have a glass of wine with their meal. Um, the food that they were eating was better for their bodies. They had a better understanding of conditioning and stretching and looking after their body, um, which allowed them to play for longer um, and at a higher level of performance for longer. Um, when you look at the modern day footballer, um, they are not just elite footballers, they are elite athletes. So they run quicker for longer. Um, you know, somebody like Ronaldo, um, you know, he's self-made. What he does, how he lives, um, you know, doesn't, you know, the clip that always stands out for me is when they gave him a Coca-Cola and he said, no, yeah. agua, agua. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that is how these guys live every day. Um, not just when you see him on the camera, but behind the camera. So I think the performances and their ability to maintain that standard for longer periods for over a period of years is because of that. Um, I think when you have generational talents uh, like Ronaldo, um, like Messi, uh, like Neymar, you know, the reason that they are getting these big money deals is because of their brand. Um, you know, they bring something bigger than just football. Um, it's everything that goes with it. If you went into the, you know, the Amazon rainforest and pulled out a picture of Leo Messi, you know, the indigenous tribesmen would go Messi. It's it, that level of um, infamy or fame, celebrity, um, you can't get away from it. And that's where, where the big money comes in. Mm. Have you seen an emergence of men over 35 playing best football and you know um, what's your opinion about yeah the scene of of like um bets or masters football yeah i mean look my mates out there having a glass of wine with my wife and his wife he's a guy called scott kinch who um played non-league football for many years very good player and still been playing vets football for the last three or four years um I've seen the emergence of it. I think it's really interesting. I've played briefly, you know, for a couple of sides, just, you know, the odd game here and there um, via, fend, via friends. I've not really got into the the hype of it as such in the same way that I've not really got into the hype of, you know, I know a lot of the boys at SE Dons, for example, you know, Beatty squad and all those, you know, the movement that they've created in Sunday football um, off the back of YouTube channels and things like that. I haven't got a problem with it. Um, my focus is on Saturday football, non-league Saturday football. The vet scene seems to be flourishing right now. I know there's a lot of good sides. I've been getting tapped up. <laughs> I was getting tapped up on Friday from uh, Caleb, a friend of mine, Caleb. Oh, LSU. Yeah. yeah, he said, I've been trying to get you for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I, I can't do Saturdays because I'm still involved in the game, right? Um, I've never really gone away from from Saturday football. Um I think it's great. I don't. I don't have a problem with it. When I look at uh, teams like the Charcoal, I'm familiar with a lot of those boys, having played with or against them over the years, and it seems to be a really interesting scene. Um, you know, I think that fair play to to those lads that are still going because I've been in the garden earlier on, and I think I've pulled my hamstring. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, um, the scene is growing, and and you've mentioned. Uh, SE Dons, Bay Tees, of course, Rising Ballers and Hashtag and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. I think um, for like me, I'm literally waiting for that Vets team to literally take into that that age group and that generation because I still think, you know, I'm I'm 42 as well. So I, you know, I think we are, we are young enough to embrace s- social media, but also I also believe that we're, we're like wise enough to actually kind of know the difference when things, you know, it's banter and when you've got to speak to someone face to face. 
Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not anti-social media. I'm not anti, um, you know, I work in the technology space, right? So I need to have an understanding of it. Um, I struggle to always have my camera out, you know, take photographs of my dinner. Um, <laughs> doing all the reels and stuff like that. So it's more a case, you know, for me of getting that right balance. Those guys do it really well. Like I say, Essie Dons, I think are great. And a lot of those guys, um, and how they um, how they manage that, and you know they've got cameramen and camera women, you know, going around, you know, filming it and so and editing the the footage and such. So it's an operation, it's a business. What they do, they make money from it. Um, so that's great. Uh, I don't. I never grew up wanting to be a YouTuber like my children. You know, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a YouTuber, Dad. Um, so I see the appeal of it. Um, I just think maybe I'm a little bit too long in the tooth. And as as men over 30, what do you think men should be prioritising their time before the age of 50 or even 60? I think it, it seems obvious, right? But I think first and foremost, it's your health. Um, and, you know, you see people, I'm sure you've had him on, Damien Scannell. Um, you know, Scans is doing great things, right, for, for a lot of people, because particularly if you've been really sporty and you've been pursuing, um, you know, I've played in football for 20 or 25 years or whatnot. And my fitness was a byproduct of me wanting to be good at football and be able to compete. It wasn't about looking in the mirror and seeing a six pack. So having the drive to get up go to the gym or go on a run uh, was, was was driven by my need to be good at football. As soon as that stopped, I didn't go to the gym. I didn't push myself to go out for a run. I just sort of thought, I'm not playing anymore, so what's the point? So finding a love for your fitness and your health, I think will really make a big difference. Um, you know, even just stretching, doing things like yoga, you know, being, you know, throughout my career, I stretched all the time. I, I played at 20, I played for Bromley and I played with a guy called Eddie Akamawa, who is, you know, one of the best people you could ever meet in your life. He's from Battersea. He's a great guy. He's a legend in non-league. He played for Kingstonian, um, like really, really good footballer. And I fell in love with him in a way that everything he did, I did. Um, he really influenced me in a positive fashion. And he was always stretching. And I said, Ed, why, why do you always stretch? He said, because then I don't pull muscles and I'm always flexible and dynamic and I can be quick off the mark. He said, well, if you're at work, stretch. If you're in the bath, stretch. If you're sitting watching TV, stretch. And I always took that on. And it was something that I did throughout my whole career. Um, you know, so having that sort of um, that fitness and that flexibility, I think is really important. I mean, in terms of, you know, what else should you be focusing on? You know, those are really important money-making years, in my opinion, 30 to 50, because you've, in most cases, you've done your apprenticeship, you know, you've learned your trade, whatever that might be, and there's an opportunity for you to earn um, in the higher echelons of, of whatever that trade is. And it, for me, it's about cashing in, um, not taking liabilities with that or liberties with that, but, you know, knowing your worth, um, because you know, even though something might take you 10 minutes to do, the reason it's taken you 10 minutes is because you've had 20 years of experience doing it. Mm. Uh, so knowing your price for your time and your worth for your time, um, I think is something that, that everybody of a certain age should have a good understanding of. I mean, my wife's already asked me what I'm getting paid for this podcast. So... <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> I love that. But, but, but you know what? It's but it's it's so true. It's you know it's about knowing knowing your worth and and uh, again I think that's kind of something that a lot of people a lot of people and even myself as well. It's like okay, you know what? Um, I've been kind of doing a certain skill and you know I'm kind of at a level of my knowledge where I know I should be you know I should be paid more. But again, it's probably being in, you know, in those circles, being like within those those like um, networks to to literally open up your mind to those opportunities, right? 
I think it's sad, right, that I have these conversations a lot, particularly with women, right? And I really encourage the the women that I work uh, that work for me or work alongside me to be comfortable asking for more money when the time if they feel that they deserve it, they should ask for it. The worst thing that can happen in that situation is that the answer is no. Sorry, I've got kids going to bed. Now. <laughs> um, so yeah, the worst thing that they can say is no, but they should be comfortable coming forward to say, look, I've done this, I've achieved that, I've delivered that, and actually I feel like I, I should get more money. And that's a that's a conversation that I encourage all of my staff to do. Um being comfortable negotiating and asking for what you deserve, because what happens is you'll set your you know, you're stewing on it. I should be getting paid more. This is ridiculous. All the work that I'm doing, I've delivered that. And then you resent it. And then then you're looking for a way out. When actually one conversation to say, look, I think I deserve a bit more. Or actually, let me do a presentation to show me the work, to show you the work that I've done and what I've delivered. And off the back of it, if they don't give you that increase in your pay that you deserve, then fine. Then go and look elsewhere to get it elsewhere if you think you deserve it. But I think you have to be able to to, to push yourself. Um, otherwise, you just go through life regretting what you've never done. Yeah, so true, so true. And Joe, honestly, thank you so much for like coming on. And uh, and again, I just want to say we've had one conversation which probably lasted about an hour and a half. And and um, when I watched you on uh, Ascendance, you know, it it wasn't even just the questions that you was asking. It was just how you was listening and. And actually responding to to everyone's comments and also letting everyone speak as well, which is which is a, an amazing skill that people just you know don't don't really kind of see. But you know, I kind of saw with like everything that you said and and your body language, it was it was kind of absolutely amazing. And um, and I hope that we can probably speak you know um, a lot more. Um, and... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, listen, if you got like I said. I'd let you know what the price is, but we can do it. Yeah, my, as long as my missus is happy with the date. <laughs> no, brilliant, brilliant. Joel, thank you. Thank you so much for, for like coming on. And um, again, um, anyone um, out there, please like, subscribe, share. And we will be back next week, Sunday, live as always, eight until nine. Have an amazing, amazing day.